Thanks so much for joining me. My name is Melissa Ho. I'm one of the curators here at the Hirshhorn Museum, and I'm one of two, along with my colleague Evelyn Hankins, who organized this new display of our permanent collection on the third floor. So I'm not sure. I see some familiar faces, some not. So if you have been here before, you know that the galleries on this floor have long been devoted to our permanent collection, which is to say all the work that you see on this level belongs to the Hirshhorn. Um, but it had not been sort of reorganized, reassessed, um, and for that matter, renovated in many decades, essentially since when the museum opened 40 years ago. We had a great opportunity this year to um, reassess these spaces. We got some funding from the Smithsonian that we're very grateful for, that we were able to do some things physically with the architecture that we hadn't been able to do before. Some of it is relatively invisible to um, the general public, things like more efficient uh, lighting tracks. Um, some are are more, are gonna directly affect how we display work here and you'll really see the difference. And one of those is that we were able to, for the first time, have a hard surface floor, um, which we've had for a while on the second floor, which is where our special exhibitions are generally mounted, but we hadn't had it up here. And it may not sound like that significant a thing, but it actually really has a huge impact because we are a museum of modern and contemporary art. And so much of contemporary art since the 50s, 60s onward rests directly on the floor and does not necessarily live happily on a carpet you know, which feels much more domestic, doesn't really feel like, especially artists who developed in the 60s where, um, you know, display spaces were shifting to more, uh, less of a townhouse and more of a warehouse kind of um, display. So there's many works as you go through this um, new exhibition where you'll notice that we have works sitting directly on the floor. Um, the other thing we were able to do was to open up the gallery. So if you have come through the third floor before, you may remember that this uh, suite of rooms used to be sort of cut up into many, many more smaller rooms. Um, there are also things like drop ceilings and little spur walls that have been added many places. And that had happened over the years, sort of on an ad hoc basis, um, I think in an attempt to eke out more conventional or attempts at an orthogonal room sequence, which of course is antithetical to the basic design of our building, which is circular. Um, so there was a curatorial consensus uh, supported by the director that we should instead really embrace the overall flow of Gordon Bunshaft's wonderful modernist design and really try to get back to what he had intended. So he had wanted um, hard surface floor. We were able to do that for the first time. That had not happened in the 70s for reasons of cost savings. He had not wanted drop ceilings. He hadn't had a lot of little spur walls. And so instead, you have this wonderful sense of momentum and sort of forward motion as you go through these curved galleries. Um, along with that, uh, when we thought about rehanning the, the third floor, we wanted to get on view so many more of the works that had entered our collection since the original Joseph Hirshhorn um, founding gift. Um, we also thought that 
it was important to um, take a fresh approach in terms of getting away from a chronological and a monographic presentation. And so previously, it had basically been a series of historical um, groupings and many, many galleries devoted to a single artist. Uh, in an effort to get a different side of our collection on view, we decided to take the opposite tactic, which is to dedicate none of these galleries to a single artist, but rather to dedicate each of them to a grouping, a diverse grouping. And it, it turned into actually a, a challenge to try to put into conversation artists from different generations, different backgrounds, different nationalities, um, different artistic context and see if you could start a conversation between a diverse array of voices. And that's really where the title for the exhibition at the Hub of Things is pointing at. So at the Hub of Things on the one hand is taken from, uh, the t is borrowed from the title of the work by Anish Kapoor, which is in the first gallery, that tremendous um, blue void, which is also uh, actual bounded form, but you feel like you could fall into its infinity. Um, it came from that piece, but as a metaphor, we are like, aha, that's perfect, because that's what the museum is. That's how we function. We are the intersection of all these um, paths, different people, artists, visitors, works of art that are coming from different origin points and crossing here. And this is where sort of ideas meet. So as you go through, and I'll just talk about this gallery, but as you go through, um, I hope that um, out of what you're looking at in a given gallery might percolate to the surface some point of commonality. Um, we didn't want to announce it in print. We wanted it to be a much more open-ended sort of experience for the visitor. We did, however, I'll just point out, uh, we made sure to write um, extended labels for each of the works so that if you see something and you're not quite sure how to make sense of it, there is an entry point there for you to get a little bit more context and information about um, the, the, the particular artist and the particular work. So this gallery, I'll, I'll, I'll be daring and I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll ask um, you if, if you see any point of commonality between the, the works in this, in this gallery? Water, lakes, ocean, movement, different ways of drawing. These are all great. Um, for sure, the, well, all, each of those is actually a potential starting point for me. Um, the water, the bodies of water, sort of natural forms, that for sure was something that informed uh, the works in this gallery. Um, drawing is an interesting one to bring up, not only because previously, uh, one other sort of um, challenge and goal that we had for this show, which I didn't mention already, was to get away from sort of dedicating certain kinds of galleries for certain kinds of works of art. So for a long time, these, the outer ring of the Hirshhorn was sort of built for large paintings, not so much sculpture because I said we had carpet, um, and uh, works on paper, as you may or may not know, are often um, tricky to put on view because they have different conservation 
issues in terms of how much light they can be exposed to. Uh, the inner ring particularly is problematic for showing works that are light sensitive because there's a lot of natural light coming in there. But for this space, um, this is actually fairly uh, radical in the history of the Hirshhorn in involving a large work of paper here by Tsai Guo Chen, um, more works of paper here on the, the inner curved wall by the conceptual um, Dutch artist Jan Dibbets, um, a work of sculpture here on the floor by Richard Lawn, and then a magnificent painting by the American um, Bryce Martin. Uh, for, for me, the, the sort of starting, launching off point for these works was thinking about different ways of approaching landscape and um, the experience of landscape. The experience of landscape as well as the tradition of landscape. So just to begin here with the Richard Lawn. Um, Richard Lawn is a British artist. He was a real pioneer of land art in the late 1960s. His practice is very much based on direct wanderings through wilderness areas. And his um, process usually takes one of two forms. One is actually making um, slight alterations and changes in the landscape itself directly. That might be something so simple as sort of um, perhaps breaking uh, branches or twigs along a prescribed path, laying rocks out in a particular pattern uh, on, a, on a riverbed. Um, the other method that of his is to transport directly materials from outside and to recontextualize it into the gallery. And so that's what we're looking at here. These are um, pieces of flint that he gathered in Norfolk. Um, it's sort of important to him that these are from a a particular place that he handpicked and sort of selected and then rearranged here in the gallery. To me, Lon's work feels really connected to sort of the deep history of art, the sort of the, the earliest um, prehistoric, yeah, it's, yeah, it's very tied to what a single human body is physically sort of capable of, of moving, lifting, um, adjusting um, towards an aesthetic end. You know, I, I find it very, uh, you know, if you just go down the mall to our colleagues at Natural History in the Hall of Early Man, um, you know, the earliest, perhaps, well, arguably the earliest sort of visual art was taking flowers, taking stones, taking things that were creating order and visual pleasure out of sort of the natural materials of your environment. And um, it often was wrapped up with ritual as well. But to me, something of this scale of this material feels really tied to that kind of you know, primitive urge to make art, um, which I love. Uh, behind us here is a more recent work from um, 2004 by the Chinese artist Tsai Guochun. And Tsai is well known for, um, well, best known, I should say, for probably two ways of working. Um, one are these explosion performances, these explosion events that are uh, momentary, um, actual events, usually involving pyrotechnics. So he's done these really amazing, essentially fireworks, um, 
in particular sites. And so they're always really tied to a particular landscape or perhaps monument or building. Um, the other thing he does is what we're looking at, which are his drawings that are also produced with explosive powder. And so he'll lay down a large sheet of paper and as large as this is, which is I think about 14 feet high, it's not nearly <laughs> the largest that he's done at this point. He's done um, drawings that have filled entire uh, warehouse type spaces. But in any case, he'll lay down a sheet of paper, um, sprinkle in a, in a, in a deliberate way, um, with thoughts, with sort of a thought towards composition, I guess you could say, D different kinds of explosive powder. He'll lay a metal plate on top, and then it'll, the fuse will be lit, and there's a tremendous um, kabam, and then it's just like a, a monoprint or something in the sense that you don't really know what you're gonna get until you lift up the plates and you see the result. But there's this amazing sort of um, capturing of that explosive energy. Um, the drawing here is provided on the one hand by the scorching, but then also you see lots and lots of holes in the paper where it's been pitted. And it's just this sort of remarkable um, encapsulation of uh, a performance um, of uh, physical force. Um, and the, the title of this piece, well, it's kind of complicated. It says, Tide Watching on West Lake Project for China Academy of Art, Hanzhou. Hanzhou, as some of you may know, is sort of a, a famously <laughs> scenic um, site, uh, lake in China that has inspired landscape painters there literally for millennia. And so it's very much um, a, a reference to that spot. And in fact, he had had hopes of doing one of his explosion events um, there. And he intended to actually churn and roil the surface of that lake with explosions, which, um, you know, for a place that's famously peaceful and contemplative <laughs> is a rather radical proposal, and in fact, it never happened. However, this was something that he considered a study for that event that never occurred. Um, the other reference to that, I, I also love it in terms of the format of it, this large, unmounted, um, vertical work on paper feels itself like a reference to the tradition of Chinese landscape painting. Um, and so it seems very appropriate to me that it's uh, sort of, he's making this direct connection to Hanzhou. Um, now, coming from a completely different, um, well, place in the world and also a completely different tradition is the Dutch conceptual photographer Jan Dibbets. Um, he was, well, is one of, well, he is still, he, he is still currently with us, and he was, back in the 60s and 70s, one of the pioneers of conceptual, using photography for conceptual art. So the whole notion of an idea or concept-driven art can, of course, take many different forms. And you can be a conceptual artist and work primarily with language, like Lawrence Wiener, whose work we have on view in the Learner Room. Um, you can be a conceptual artist and work primarily with color. Um, Dibbets is somebody who used the camera to express his ideas. And he played a lot actually with um, perception and how you read a picture. This piece 
is both about, so it's about drawing, like somebody pointed out. It's about um, landscape and this natural sort of body of water, which you can also see. It's also about, I would say, time. It's about the elapse of time. Um, you can probably take it, take, read it, undress it with your eyes, but I'll just describe, as you move from left to right, there is a temporal movement. Um, the very most left-hand uh, image feels almost like a Barnett Newman painting in the sense that the picture plane is like right up against the surface of that photograph. It, he's, of course, all he's done, and this also feels like something Richard Lawn would do, is he's made this very simple alteration in the landscape simply by scraping, I don't actually know if it was with, probably not with his foot, but scraping with something through wet beach sand to make this line, this mark, and here on the far left, it, it appears, as I said, almost like um, a flat uh, picture plane. As the images progress, and you can see in the upper right corner, there's this little sticker that at first might look like a price tag or something. It's actually a time code. So he's showing you <laughs> how much time, in his very dry conceptual artist way, he's showing you the time that has elapsed between the, the different exposures. And as the time is going by, the um, tide of the water is slowly coming in and space begins to um, change. And all of a sudden a space that felt very flat and up and down like this is letting more sort of air and room to breathe in. And it's also, you know, eradicating this mark of the artist. So it's kind of, I really um, love it as this, very uh, sort of humble collaboration between the artist and the earth, you know? It's tied to the motion of the planet, it's tied to the motion of the waters, um, it's tied to this experience of time, and yet it's such a simple means, which I think is, you know, one of the hallmarks of a very successful work of conceptual art. It's often um, a very simple sort of idea or process that's setting the whole thing into action, but um, it's, it's connected with much sort of larger um, concerns or uh, feelings. Um, and so by the very end, the water has completely taken over and you see no more of the sand. Uh, finally here is a painting by Bryce Martin. This is from his Cold Mountain series that's from the very late 1980s and early 1990s. Um, one of his most sort of lyrical, beautiful, and well-known series of paintings. Um, Martin started was already active as an artist in the 1960s. At that time, he was doing much more um, minimalist, uh, encaustic works that often had sort of flat color covering entire canvases. And what happened um, in the late 80s was he started looking at East Asian art. He started looking at East Asian philosophy and poetry. And the reason why this series is called Cold Mountain was that it was partly um, 
inspired by Martin reading the work of a hermit poet monk named Han Shan, and his name literally translated is Cold Mountain because he took the pseudonym from the area where he lived, which was very mountainous and rugged. So what you end up sort of seeing in Martin's rendition of his Cold Mountain is an abstract language that is not literally language, but is clearly somewhat informed by the sort of gesture and performance, that tradition of Chinese calligraphy. Um, but there's also more sort of space and structure in there that feels like it could be connected, again, to sort of natural geological forms or topographical forms. And so it's an interesting case of, you know, a dedicated abstract painter finding ways to stay true to that language, but to be making um, connections to a larger body of both sort of cultural material and also, um, I would say, I guess, physical, um, environmental references as well. So um, this is one of my favorite galleries in the exhibition. Um, I think it's, it's a, we were a little bit, we weren't sure that uh, we thought, oh, are people going to feel like it's too quiet or too muted in color or something as a starter? But um, I hope from my comments, you can understand why we felt like it was a good, in fact, a very illustrative kickoff to our approach um, doing this show of wanting to bring together um, artists from very different backgrounds and different moments. And again, to return to sort of the, the, the building and this experience of walking through a circular set of galleries. I mean, the other metaphor that came back to me with the hub, although we are thinking more of a transportation hub where things are, are, are overlapping and intersecting, there's also this feeling of the wheel and how the same sort of subject matter, the same concerns somehow end up popping up again and again, you know, maybe it skips a generation, maybe it shows itself in a sort of a new unexpected way. Um, but that was also one of the things that um, we were responding to in, in trying to craft these galleries. So I'm happy to take any questions if you have some. It was very much um, artists res responding to and interacting with landscape, whether that was the artistic tradition of landscape or whether that was sort of the literal land and sort of works artists like Richard Lawn, who of course depend upon um, moving through wilderness to create his work. Um, you know, Bryce Martin is not so much about that but he is connecting to um, a, a tradition of artists who are addressing the landscape, like Han Shan. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank and thank you for visiting Hirshhorn.